0: Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love Ireland and baseball, you're one of us. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. Enjoy the show!
1: Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. On the show today, my colleague Jim Ward will go in-depth into an audio cut from Dodgers and Padres legend Steve Garvey and he'll wrap up things today with a little Irish baseball history. Also on today's episode, you will hear the second part of my interview with Patrick Mahoney, author of the book Recovering an Irish Voice from the American Frontier. I'm going to get things started by turning it over to Jim Ward.
2: Thanks, Rick. We have now reached the off-season in Major League Baseball, which has so many of us already counting down the days until spring training 2022. On a recent episode of The Crack and the Bat on Irish Baseball TV, members of the Irish American Baseball Society got to see an interview with the Los Angeles Dodgers and San Diego Padres legend Steve Garvey. To watch that entire conversation and for more episodes of The Crack and the Bat on Irish Baseball TV, visit irishbaseball.org. Garvey certainly has fond memories of spring training. With his father serving as a bus driver for the Brooklyn Dodgers when they held their camp in the Tampa Bay area of Florida, Steve had the opportunity to serve as the club's bat boy for the exhibition schedule. Here he is talking about that very first game as a bat boy when Brooklyn was the defending World Series champions.
3: We pull up to airline field in uh, St. Petersburg and standing outside the guys are getting their bags and a uh, little fella comes out in boxer shorts and a strap t-shirt, little cigar, and he goes, uh, looks at my dad and me, he says, kid, you want a bat boy today? And I looked at my dad, and said, sure, can I, dad? He said, yeah. So um, he said, we'll get the bats and balls and everything out there, and they're going to be out in 15 minutes for batting practice. So dad helps me lug the bat bag and the helmets and so forth. And I get out there and I'm putting everything in place and I hear, Pish! And I look and there's Mickey Mantle, which every kid loved hitting these towering home runs into Tampa Bay. And I'm just staring at him in awe. And I hear, son, you want to play catch? I turn around this Gil Hodges, which was my dad's favorite, about the same size as dad. And I said, yes sir, now I just got my first Rawlings part of the Hyde glove it was about 9.95. You know, that was expensive back then and i took it off my belt and he tossed me a ball with a little bit of arc and i'm thinking you know mr hodges i'm starting literally i can't kind of toss it back a little more of an arc and i hear and i look and boom ball hits me in the chest and uh, Gil comes over you know quite the family man he said you're right son i said uh yes sir he said you weren't watching mickey hit that ball over And i looked at him and i said yes sir and and probably the first moment outside of my family i got a true learning lesson he looks at me and he says son i said yes sir he said we're the world champions and i go yes sir. i won't look anymore. So <laughs> at that moment i realized when you're in the presence of uh of uh, the top of the mountain you got to concentrate on that. So uh, that day, I sat next to, to Reese and, and Hodges talking about the Yankee pitcher and how he held a fastball and curveball. And Jackie almost sat on top of me when he wasn't looking. And he kind of sat down and, and he goes, Oh, I'm sorry, son. And I'm thinking, That's okay, Mr. Robinson. Show and tell on Monday. And uh, I'm going to have a great time. And they won that day. Uh, it was to be Jackie's last spring. Uh, and it was right before, you know, two years later, the transition to uh, Los Angeles. But uh, the traveling secretary loved my dad. So for six or seven years after that, I bad boyed for the team. Then as I got into high school, of course, I was busy, but dad still drove. And he actually drove until my uh, last spring with the Dodgers in '82. So, uh, Quite a history of of, uh, growing up with my idols.
2: That was Steve Garvey on The Crack and the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. I'm Jim Ward, and you're listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. It was interesting to hear Steve talk about in so much, very much description of remembering vividly, and I'm sure in color, the sounds of, of the ball whizzing, the crack of the bat of Mickey blasting one over the wall, and... It's one of those things when you hear it. It's so funny you you hear these things, and you you hear a sound, and you the bat sounds a certain way, especially the wood bats. And I wish we could get more wood bats into all levels of baseball, and and you know really eliminate the aluminum bat out of baseball from after from high school on up. Uh, it would be so much better. I mean, I remember playing with the wood bat in little league. That's all we had was wood bats. And you know, and when the ball was hit and you heard it and you knew a good hit because it had a specific sound. And hear Steve talk about that in hearing how Mickey just crushed the ball. And when you hear that certain crack, it makes you want to look in description to sit around with some of these legends and Hall of Famers that he was so blessed to sit beside on the bench and soak up everything that he could. It's no wonder that Steve Garvey turned out to be the great legend that he was. Steve Garvey is one of my all-time favorite players for a number of reasons. One, he did it the right way. Two, he was the true professional, led by example. And even still today, coming on here on the Irish Baseball Podcast, the crack in the bat, being a frequent guest, the irishbaseball.org website. And it's so much fun to hear him describe about that and talking about his dad who drove him even to his one of his final years in spring training even when it was the los angeles dodgers i can relate to that because my dad drove a bus too so in a way i can relate a lot to steve garvey for more episodes of the crack in the bat on irish baseball tv visit irishbaseball.org while there why not join us and become a member of the irish american baseball society and follow the irish baseball podcast and other great things happening With Irish baseball around the world including Little League in Northern Ireland. I will now turn things back over to my colleague Rick Becker. I'm Jim Ward and you're listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast.
1: Thank you Jim. I'm Rick Becker and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast. Back in episode 13 I talked with author Patrick Mahoney about his newest book. Today we welcome Patrick back to the show Thanks for joining us.
0: Doing great, Rick.
1: On a previous episode, we discussed Patrick's book, Recovering an Irish Voice from the American Frontier. You can obviously go back and listen to that episode, but please pick up the book, Recovering an Irish Voice from the American Frontier. However, today we are going to be talking about the actual purpose of this podcast, and that is baseball. Patrick, you have done a lot of work with John Fitzgerald and the Irish American Baseball Society. Why don't you talk about some of that work?
0: Yeah, well, I was delighted to to kind of get involved with John and the society, and he set up kind of a baseball researchers network. Um, So I think there's about five of us in the group, and we meet monthly, and it's quite informal. Um, We kind of carry out research each month and then kind of meet to discuss what we've come across. And uh, I suppose, what we're end we're kind of our end goal is to just keep um, contributing to our understanding of this kind of great and very vast picture of Irish involvement in, in the game of baseball.
1: So as you've done this, what are some themes that you've picked up through your research?
0: Yeah, well, I suppose being a historian of the 19th century, a lot of the work that I would do would kind of be an earlier period. Um, and then obviously, we have some researchers um, working on genealogy of current players and um, kind of, you know, later developments. One of the things that I've seen is just that the rise of kind of Irish nationalist or Irish Republican fervor in, um, I suppose both of them, in uh, the kind of late 19th and mid 19th century amongst the Irish, both in the United States and in Ireland, um, is quite well suited to the rise of baseball as well, the kind of prominence of baseball. Uh, for example, a few kind of things I've come across are even during the Fenian invasion of Canada in 1866, shortly after the Fenian invasion of Canada, uh, border agents actually came across a, a box of baseball bats that were being sent out to a group of Fenians uh, in the American West. And they thought this was some new Fenian implement of war, some new weapon that they were uh, they were hoping to you know go over the 49th parallel with and, and give it another crack. Um but you know that's that's one story. Others, the Fenians said we'd love to see a Fenian club in every city in the United States, uh, which never happened. But there were quite a few Fenian clubs um, in you know scattered across both the American West and even uh, the American South and Midwest and the East. Um, they very much embraced the game, and one of my kind of interests would be the. Um, the implications of playing baseball for these young men uh, who were quite militant in their outlook on on politics. they saw it as something that they could kind of um, improve their bodies and improve their um, maybe acumen as as soldiers and also their discipline. So uh, those kind of uh, aspects of of baseball.
1: That's such an interesting perspective that you're bringing because, one of the things that gets talked about a lot is Irish Americans playing baseball, Irish immigrants playing baseball in the United States and how that affected the politics of the United States. But you're looking at it from a different angle as somebody who is in Ireland looking at Irish Americans playing baseball and how that affected the politics of Ireland.
0: Mm, Yeah. And I mean, even individual trajectories, um, I think a lot of the Irish in Ireland around the time of the 19th century saw baseball as a means of personal prosperity. They looked across the ocean and saw how many Irish names were filling out the rosters of uh, Major League Baseball and said, look, you know, these guys are making great money. And, you know, if we can go over there and succeed at it as well, we could be making a a hefty coin. In this sense, there's kind of an effort, probably more in the 1920s, uh, to kind of push the game in Ireland so that it can bring about prosperity. And there's actually one particular individual and he absolutely had political aspirations. Uh, He was a larger than life uh, kind of Irish American businessman, millionaire. Well, yeah, I'll leave it at that. But he um, is originally born in Limerick, JJ Hanley. Um, And he actually comes back to Ireland and says he's disappointed to see that the game hadn't taken off more so in Ireland because he said, you know, there was barnstorming tours of the GAA going to places like New York and Chicago, but he said Americans didn't fully understand the potency of Gaelic Games or the importance of the Gaelic Games. So he said that was never going to make young Irish men prosperous. Uh, he said that that had to come through baseball and if they, you know, put resources into, you know, the development of baseball on the ground in Ireland, then, uh, we'd get this vision of, or I suppose his vision was seeing the championship, uh, nine of Ireland face off against the championship nine of the United States in the world champion, you know, the, in the, in the World series, I guess, unfortunately that, that never came about and, uh. Unlike you know, I suppose very much like his other kind of vision was um, he was an eccentric character. He actually went up to north to the north here uh, in a custom fitted out car with a tricolor flag, the American flag, and the papal flag, and tried to buy Northern Ireland back. <laughs> so you can get a, a gist for what type of character he was from that, but uh, neither of his visions came to came to anything.
1: so you were born and raised in Hartford. You were right on that line. So what was it? Were you a Yankees fan or were you a Red Sox fan?
0: That's a that's a dangerous question, Rick. Yeah, we're on the the Mason Dixon line of baseball allegiances. Um, I actually was a Cincinnati Reds fan um, for the most part, and I realized that's a cop out. <laughs> I would have been a, kind of a split Red Sox and Cincinnati Reds fan growing up in the nineties. So how did that
1: come about, the Cincinnati Reds love?
0: Yeah, it came about really. I'd um, Gotten a book, I suppose when I was very, very little at the library, a biography of Pete Rose, Um, (laughs) which I suppose could be controversial now, but uh, I got a biography of Pete Rose and I read it a few times and I just, he was my favorite player, even though he had stopped playing uh, a good while before I really started following the game. And then as luck would have it, uh, I was also kind of a Dallas Cowboys fan growing up and Deion Sanders was uh, the epitome of kind of coolness to me Um, and he got signed by the Reds um, from from the Braves and so I was a big Reds guy in the days of Barry Larkin, Deion Sanders, Reggie Sanders, um, Brett Boone, just had a great squad, great uniforms and uh, yeah so I I avoided somewhat that kind of fierce rivalry that was uh, going on amongst all my schoolmates in Hartford. That's such an interesting perspective
1: because I grew up in an area of Pennsylvania that was kind of stuck in between a bunch of different fan bases, and I ended up just becoming a Red Sox fan because I was watching Wade Boggs. He was my Deion Sanders, if you will. And I think a lot of people aren't used to fandoms coming out of different locations like that. And I think our ages seem to be fairly similar. Mm. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that with the advent of ESPN, now with the Major League Baseball Network. Kids growing up now can see everybody. They're not just getting the local team on television, which I think is opening the possibility of somebody in Florida being an Angels fan or somebody in, you know, Portland, Oregon, where they don't have a team, linking up with the Astros because they like, you know, or whatever it it, you're watching players, you're seeing teams develop personalities because of what the front office is doing. And maybe you're connecting to a philosophy or to a player more than you are to geography. And I think that did start sort of with our generation because of the way media evolved.
0: Yeah, no, I'd absolutely agree with you. Um, I mean, I can remember as a kid being allowed to stay up and watch uh, Sunday Night Baseball if the Reds were playing on, uh, you know, <laughs> wherever they might be being beamed in from, I'd be allowed to stay up and watch that. But I think it is, as you say, just a totally different different um, game for, for, you know, fans, young fans these days where you can log into Twitter and or Facebook and subscribe to your favorite team and get the almost around-the-clock updates on old vintage clips, um, you know, from from years gone by or what's going on today. So I think it is just uh, a whole different consumption of of the game and of, um, as you say, connections to players and, and everything else. So I think maybe we'll see a few more Cincinnati Reds fans in Connecticut or Pennsylvania.
1: Now, speaking of that, how is baseball growing as you see it in Ireland? Are we starting to see more people get into the sport? That is definitely a major passion of us here, the Irish American Baseball Society and the Irish Baseball Podcast. We would love to see it pick up a little more of a fandom over in Ireland. So what are you seeing on the ground?
0: I think in terms of both playing baseball in Ireland and definitely in terms of fandoms, um, that it, it is caught on tremendously um, from, from days gone by. Because I can remember as a kid, um, you know, coming over on visits and like people having pretty much no interest in what was going on. If you were talking about, you know, um, whatever happened to be, you know, the, the playoffs or, you know, whatever moment it was in, um, in baseball, the, the baseball season. But even when I was in university in Galway, um, I have kind of my immediate group of friends, probably followed what was going on with the New York Yankees closer than anybody that I would be friends with back in Connecticut or in, in uh, Woodlawn or in the Bronx. So that was always kind of a funny point to me. And they always had a very specific kind of take on it. And as you mentioned before about kind of players and being connected to players and, and the kind of the advent of the, a different advent of the the kind of reception of the game. They would all be following in a different time zone, so it was very rare, I think, that they were actually watching the games. But they were watching the playbacks of the games in the morning. So they would be huge Derek Jeter fans or huge um, Tanaka fans, and they would kind of follow those players religiously, even if they weren't watching, you know, every game or even uh, if they were seeing, you know, the odd game. And then, of course, a lot of the guys that would have come back off of J1s. Uh, you know, they were spending the summer in places like Woodlawn or out in Chicago or Boston. They, A lot of them would have developed that interest in baseball and then kind of brought it back with them and kept following the teams of the cities that they were living in. I think it's always interesting to remember. I was a history major
1: in college. You That is your profession. You are an historian. It's important to remember that history is always happening. And when we think about something like Irish-American baseball history or baseball history in general, the things you're witnessing now are the modern history of baseball. So how things like SportsCenter and the Internet are affecting the fandoms now in different ways, much like radio and then television... Affected the way we perceived this same game a hundred years ago and why it's so different. So, the modern history that we're seeing is just sort of playing out in that little description that you gave there. Thank you so much for joining us. Both conversations from the previous episode about your book, Recovering an Irish Voice from the American Frontier. That was wonderful. And of course, we always just enjoy talking a little bit of baseball. And I appreciate that today as well. Thank you, Rick. I'm Rick Becker, and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast. Here's my colleague, Jim Ward, to wrap up today's episode with some Irish baseball history.
2: Thanks, Rick. The dog days of August. We've all heard that phrase in baseball before. Teams have crossed the halfway point of the season. The temperature really starts to get unbearable, and it isn't quite time for the excitement of the pennant race. There just isn't that light at the end of the tunnel, when a lot of players need a little break and may not have the stamina that they once had back in April. Well, that wasn't the case for Joe McGinnity in August of 1903. The pitcher who earned the nickname Iron Man won both ends of a doubleheader three times in that one month. It was a feat he accomplished two other times in his career. McGinnity's durability was legendary. In just 10 seasons in the National or American Leagues, He led baseball in innings pitched on four different occasions. He topped baseball in appearances on the mound six times. Games started twice and complete games also twice. Those two seasons he led the league in complete games, he had 39 and 44 respectively. As a matter of fact, he had more than 30 complete games seven times in his 10 seasons. The Ironman racked up more than 3,400 career innings while posting an incredible 2.66 ERA. As you could imagine, that workload and low ERA kept him in the running for the league lead in wins more often than not. He topped that category five times and had a career-high 35 wins with the New York Giants in 1904 when he had the best ERA in baseball and of his career at 1.66. Later in his career as a coach with the Brooklyn Dodgers, McGinnity didn't appreciate the organization's policy on carrying as many as 10 pitchers on the roster. He told the United Press, quote, They have been influenced into the belief that they should not have to work without a long rest and that they can't be effective without that rest, unquote. Despite his large size for that time period, 5'11 and 204 pounds, McGinnity wasn't known for overpowering hitters with fastballs. Instead, the righty relied on a so-called rising curveball that he nicknamed Old Sal. Connie Mack described the Iron Man as, quote, a magician. Mack added that McGinnity, quote, knew all the tricks for putting a batter on the spot, unquote. McGinnity's father, Peter, was born in Dublin before immigrating to the United States in 1861. Peter worked in the coal mines and after his death, his son Joe took up that profession for a time. Since the life of a coal miner in that era was a transient one, Joe never had any formal schooling. He actually initially gained the nickname Iron Man in the minor leagues. When a reporter asked what he did in the off-season, Joe responded that he worked in a foundry. Due to that experience, after playing in a fundraising exhibition game in 1904 to raise money for a Vulcan statue at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis, Missouri, McGinnity was actually given the opportunity to pour some of the iron into the molds for that statue. Joe Iron Man McGinnity was selected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee in 1946, 17 years after his death. In his legendary 2001 book, The New Bill James Historical Abstract, James listed McGinnity as the 41st greatest hurler in baseball history. I'm Jim Ward, and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast. To learn more about other
1: Irish baseball legends, visit irishbaseball.org. For my colleague Jim Ward, Padres and Dodgers superstar Steve Garvey, and Patrick Mahoney, author of the book Recovering an Irish Voice from the American Frontier, I'm Rick Becker, and this has been episode 22 of the Irish Baseball Podcast.
3: Thanks
0: for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.